Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trigauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Jürgen Karling is a research professor at Prio. His work on migration covers diverse topics like immigration policy, gender, border control, remittances, and migrant fatalities, among others. But today, Jürgen and I will be discussing one aspect of migration that is often portrayed in the news, yet rarely in a nuanced way, migrant smuggling. Jürgen has contributed a chapter on the topic to a new book coming out later this year. And I took the opportunity to talk with him about how migrant smuggling is experienced by the migrants themselves, and how politicians and nation-states use migrant smuggling as an example when making points about their immigration policy. So welcome to the podcast, Jürgen Karling. I'm very excited to have you here because you've been a major supporter of this podcast and uh, very helpful in developing the entire project. So thanks for being here. Um, Today we're going to talk about the topic of migrant smuggling which is probably something that people can relate to at least superficially from media coverage. Um, you've gone, of course, much deeper into it with your research. And later this year, you will have a chapter out in a book, um, which we will link to in the description when it when it is out. The title isn't quite finished yet, so we won't give that away. Um, but more info will be coming later. But let's just start off by uh, defining what is migrant smuggling? What does that actually mean? Migrant smuggling is the facilitation of irregular entry into a country where the migrant is not a citizen or doesn't have um, have the legal right to, to live. So it's any way in which you help somebody enter a country where that country says they're not supposed to be. So of course, we immediately envision smuggling in the form of, sort of bringing people uh, across borders physically by boat or through the woods or something. And that's obviously an important part of it, but it could also be through um, supplying people with um, with documents like um, forgeries or illegally obtained documents or in any other way, making it possible to enter a country, uh, although that country says you're not supposed to. So in the media, oftentimes we see migrants portrayed, but who are these smugglers uh, who run these businesses and around the world, of course? They are incredibly diverse, first and foremost. So um, there are sort of classical stereotypes of, for instance, the um, so-called coyotes who smuggle people across um, the U.S.-Mexican borders. Um, and we know that there are smugglers taking people um on boats across the Mediterranean. But um, a lot of the attention to smugglers in the media is hyped up in, in the sense of portraying them as big organized criminal organizations that sort of have better equipment than the Coast Guard and so on. And that is true in some cases, but not, not as a rule. So there are lots of very small-scale operations, uh, for instance, former fishers who, or even current fishers, fishermen who have a sort of side business of, of taking people across the across the sea. But part of the problem has been that many of the anti-smuggling um, efforts of states have driven out the sort of small-scale businesses and only um, sort of created an environment where only the, the more professionalized organizations are, are able to, 
to survive. Uh, and then you might ask why why do smugglers do this? And then of course most of them do it as as work. It's a service that they provide um, for a fee for a payment. Um, but that's something that actually varies in how smuggling is defined. That internationally we we tend to say that uh, migrant smuggling is this kind of facilitation for monetary or other gain. But a lot of countries um, have um, have implemented legislation which is wider in the sense that they regard it as smuggling even when people don't do it for for gain. So even say you you bring your cousin across the border um, just to be kind to him or her, or as we saw during the, the refugee crisis in, in 2015, volunteers driving refugees across borders um, just sort of as an as an act of civil engagement, uh, they could be prosecuted as smugglers for that. Um, so some countries insist on not saying that it has to be for gain, but any kind of help regardless of the profits. And then when it comes to the the, the sort of monetary aspect of it, of course, uh, we hear about these very high fees that migrants often pay. But I think before we sort of take that as a sign of the cynical nature of, of the smugglers, we have to think about the risks that the smugglers are also running. Because um, the, one of the responses of states has been to um, increase the penalties for smuggling and to uh, direct a lot of effort to sort of catching the smugglers. Um, and that um, means that you know, to stay in the business, they have to have... Uh, they have to have equipment and vehicles and so on that um, helps them evade the state um, state apparatus. But it, they also have to have an income that uh, justifies the risk that they're taking. But some of these measures also make smuggling more dangerous for the migrants um, in the sense that when states go after the smugglers and say, for instance, that you know, we'll... Um, seek to arrest smugglers and, and give them um, long prison sentences, that um, gives the smugglers a very strong incentive to not be caught, um, which means that they uh, would often prefer sending migrants off on their own for as much of the journey as possible, rather than sort of bringing them safely to, to the other shore or, to, or literally across the border. Um, so that's one of the things that we've seen, for instance, in the in the Mediterranean, that many years ago, smugglers took their clients um, all the way to the other shore and then you know, said goodbye when they were safely uh, on dry land again. But that's less the case now, simply because the the risks of being apprehended are, are too big for the smugglers. So... If, as you have explained, there are so many risks and, and dangers to the migrants, why do migrants choose to be smuggled? Well, we know that the the demand for migration worldwide is much, much higher than the supply of migration opportunities, regardless of whether that's migration for work or, or even for joining family members or migration for protection from, from persecution. And a lot of the smuggling today is smuggling of migrants who are fleeing danger and have um, have um, good cause for seeking protection in another country, applying for asylum. 
Um, and that's different from what it was uh, 10, 20 years ago, also in the, in the context of Europe, where when smuggling across the Mediterranean first became a big issue, it was mainly people who wanted to go and work in Europe. And there was a huge um, black labor market where people could work in agriculture or domestic work or other types of, of work um, without the necessary papers. And one way of entering would be to be smuggled. Others came on on tourist visas and, and overstayed. But smuggling played a role in keeping the sort of um, workforce um, of undocumented workers in destination countries um, growing. But today, what we see more than that is that people who have a genuine need for protection have no way of accessing that protection because they are prevented from traveling to the countries where they might seek asylum. Because if you're, say, you're an, you're involved in opposition politics, uh, or you're in a country where you're you belong to a minority that's being persecuted, for instance, you, as a rule, won't be able to apply for a visa to then travel to Norway or Germany or some of the European or North American country to apply for asylum, and you can't apply f- for asylum from that country's embassy or consulate. You have to physically get to that country's territory and then um, apply. And that's where the market for smuggling has arisen or, or grown a lot. That smugglers are, in a way, the missing link between um, states' commitment to providing protection to those who need it and those people's ability to actually access protection. A quick sidebar here. What is the difference between smuggling and trafficking? Because uh, they're sometimes brought up together. And is it also possible for a migrant who is choosing to be smuggled to then end up in a situation where they're trafficked? Yes. So they're closely related terms, but they're fundamentally different in the sense that trafficking is, by definition, for the purpose of exploitation. So people are... um, coerced or deceived or in other ways tricked into um, being brought across borders for the purpose of exploitation. So often sexual exploitation, but um, but um, even even more commonly at the global scale is other types of, of exploitation. For instance, in, in fisheries it's common or in certain types of factory work, agriculture and so on. But then the whole concept of trafficking hinges on this exploitative intent. Whereas um, smuggling is a service that is offered or sold to the migrant. Um, And the migrant is not a victim in that relationship. It's the state whose um, immigration laws are being violated who's the the victim in, in that transaction. So there's nothing inherently exploitative in smuggling itself. But having said that, migrants who are being smuggled are incredibly vulnerable uh, for many different reasons. So first, they often the, the nature of smuggling means that they have to, to travel um, in places or by means which are inherently dangerous, like on a small boat across the ocean or across a, a mountain range um, on foot or other ways in which they're exposed to physical danger. Um, also, they're completely at the mercy of the smugglers in terms of their 
well-being. So when smugglers do want to exploit people, they're they're able to do that. Um, but that not that's not um, a given consequence of of the smuggling itself. On the contrary, many smugglers are concerned about their their business reputation, and that's especially the case for smugglers who sort of offer um, offer to help migrants from sort of from their country of origin all the way to the destination. In the sense that if they do that and do it well, um, then others in the country of origin will know that they are trustworthy and they can keep their business going. Um, so that's one of the things that actually makes it less dangerous for migrants is if they can use sort of an established smuggling business that has a reputation to protect. Um, and the smugglers then have, have that concern um, in mind as much as sort of the immediate profit from that particular migrant. But one thing that's changed a lot is that as um, as these journeys become more and more difficult, as the obstacles to crossing borders become bigger, then the itineraries become much more fragmented and um, and longer, both in in terms of distance and time. So people often spend months and even years on the move, piecing together different legs of the journey, and then often having to negotiate with new smugglers along the way. And then they're both you know, in a more vulnerable situation as they negotiate those deals in, um, in a country where they're not at home, where they might have run out of money and where they are desperate to, to move onwards. That's, that's the worst starting point for, for making a deal with a smuggler than when you're in your own, own country. So in those kinds of situations, um, migrants might be forced to take much bigger risks in terms of the smugglers that they choose to go with or the ways in which they choose to travel and, and so on. Yeah, and in your book chapter, which I had the privilege of reading ahead of time, you talk about migrants as consumers in a way, but as you say, when that journey becomes more fragmented, they lose their consumer power, their spending power, and also their ability to review the smugglers, I suppose, through other uh, ways, through their networks. So all of this said, how then do migrants and states relate to smugglers? And maybe we should focus on states now, because we've talked a lot about the migrants themselves. Yeah, so for states... um... Of course, you would think that smugglers are primarily a nuisance in the sense that they undermine the state's ability to control its immigration. And that's that's definitely the case. But then my one of my main arguments is, in this chapter is that smugglers have also increasingly become an asset or a resource for states because of the particular political environment in which they operate. So what we, what we have... Now, in a situation where so many of the migrants being smuggled are people in need of protection, um, states um, are in a difficult situation in terms of identifying ways to deal with the situation because they they can't just say you know let them come because then the numbers will be bigger than the than the population is willing to accept in terms of how many people um, can be given protection. But also draconian measures of keeping them away um, are, I mean, that's happening, but it's politically more complicated than 
when the migrants being smuggled were primarily people who sought uh, illegal work or undocumented work. So when the states are pushed to do something about all the fatalities on, on the border in the Mediterranean, um, to do something about the huge scale of smuggling, they have limited options. Um, so in the past, they, they blamed the migrants and they also blamed the countries of origin to a much larger extent, saying that, you know, these are corrupt regimes that um, collude with the smugglers and and uh, don't manage their own um, migration in a good way. But now the international regime is much more um, dominated by an ethos of collaboration between countries and collaboration with countries of transit and, and origin. So European countries or other destination countries hesitate to just point fingers at the countries of origin and say, you know, this is your fault. You should do more to stop it. So then, in a way, they're left with smugglers as the only you know, enemy to go after. Um, and that's evident in the way that states very often bring up smugglers when they are pushed to um, to say what they're doing about the situation and what they're doing about the people who die in the attempt of crossing borders. So by being able to uh, blame smugglers, uh, states are in a way, able to deflect responsibility from themselves. And um, that blaming of the smugglers is very strongly linked to the idea that smugglers are inherently cynical and evil and exploitative. Because then it's like when we as states go after the smugglers, we are in reality helping the migrants because we're taking away these evil, exploitative organizations that... um, that um, endanger migrants or exploit migrants. But uh, what's not being said then is that these same smugglers are also what's enabling migrants to actually seek the protection that they might need. And here we might need to pause also on the concept of migrants, because now when I'm talking about migrants, I'm, I'm using it in the the way it's traditionally used by the United Nations and others that a migrant is someone who's left their country of origin or place of usual residence to live somewhere else for a while, regardless of why and regardless of whether it's legal or illegal and so on. Um, and that means that any migrant is potentially a refugee, potentially somebody who could have good reasons for seek protection. And that also means that our ways of dealing with smuggling have to... Um, to be adapted to that possibility that anyone uh, on board that boat or in that van might have a genuine need for protection and should be given the opportunity to to seek that protection. Um, so that's why states can't just send um, people who are smuggled back without processing um, the claims that they might present when they're when they're on the other side of the border and have the possibility to to seek protection. But this is uh, this has been a source of um, or should I say conflict and and uh, confusion in the sense that some people and some organizations insist on using migrants in a more restrictive way as anyone who is not a refugee. And that means that they can also interpret migrant smuggling as smuggling people who don't need protection. Um, and this has been one of the challenges um, in how states have 
dealt with with migra- migrant smuggling as well that they've often chosen sort of to overlook this fundamental role that smugglers play in um, making persecuted people able to seek the protection that they that they need. What do you think is the biggest misconception about migrant smuggling? Because as I alluded to in the beginning of the podcast, many people, especially in Europe, will relate to this in terms of the Mediterranean. For example, seeing um, migrants drowning and and these kinds of images. But uh, that's only one narrative. So what do you think is the the biggest misconception that people have based on your research? I think the biggest misconception is this idea that the activity of smuggling and the the actual smugglers are inherently exploitative or evil. It's it's more like any other service that is sold and which can be good or good or bad. And of course, when the circumstances are what they are and crossing a border without documentation is, is dangerous, you want that service to be good more than many other sort of more uh, mundane services, of course. But it's it's important to think of it in this way because... Um, migrants who purchase smuggling services, they can be in a stronger or weak position to make good choices. And many people have to use the services of smuggling to to save their lives, to escape persecution. persecution. And then we have to ask, you know, are they in a, in a position to make informed choices in terms of um, which smugglers to to use, uh, where to be smuggled, how to be smuggled, and so on. And also, what are the incentives um, that smugglers operate under that could either make smuggling more dangerous or less dangerous for the for the migrants? So this is the billion or several billion dollar question. Do you have any policy recommendations based on your research? I think it's... Um, it's hard to come up with good um, policy recommendations on this. And that's because there are there are real dilemmas here in the sense that um, European countries and other, other um, high-income countries, many of them have committed to offering uh, protection to people who need it. But at the same time, there are just many, many more people out there who need it than the same states are willing to offer protection. And what's sort of um, making this uh, contradiction possible over time is that states are able to keep the people who need protection at a distance, keeping them away from launching um, claims to apply for asylum. So uh, that's the that's the way in which this dilemma is being being sustained over time. For me, the, the main issue is that states are not, admitting how difficult this is and that the dilemmas are real. Because when when you can say that smugglers are um, evil and exploitative and a nuisance and we should just fight them as hard as we can, then it's easy. I mean, then it's a question of waging that war in the most um, effective way. But when you when you bring in the other perspectives on the the way in which smugglers are linking the need for protection with the ability to seek that protection, then it becomes much more challenging. And those are real challenges in terms of the difference between 
the number of people who need protection and the number of people that European countries, for instance, are willing to offer protection. But we won't solve it by closing our eyes to that dilemma and saying that smugglers are sort of the source of the of the evil evil when people are dying at the borders. So I've written a chapter in a book about human smuggling, which is coming out in its third edition later this year. And I've called the chapter The Double Duality of Migrant Smugglers. And my core argument is that the smugglers um, embody this kind of duality, both vis-a-vis migrants and vis-a-vis states, in the sense that for migrants, smugglers are both an asset and a resource and a threat or a danger at the same time. They're an asset in the sense that they enable migrants to cross the borders that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to cross. But they're also a potential danger in the sense that migrants are incredibly vulnerable at the hands of smugglers. And then again, on on the state side, smugglers also function both as a threat and as a resource. So the same kind of, of duality. A threat in the sense that they undermine the abilities of states to control their borders, but also increasingly as a resource in the sense that they give states what we might call a, a good enemy, uh, someone to direct uh, efforts and aggression towards in a very difficult policy field that politicians and um, government officials want to you know, make as straightforward as possible and want to turn into a question of just fighting the evil smugglers in the most efficient ways. Whereas in reality, it's... Um, it's a matter of, of dilemmas that are deep-rooted political dilemmas that we need to, to solve in, uh, in other ways. So in that kind of political landscape, the, the smugglers are actually an asset for, for states as well. Thank you for talking with me today, Jürgen. I really appreciate it. And when your uh, chapter is out in the book, we will link it in the description of the podcast. Thanks for picking Prio's piece in a pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, PRIO, located in Norway. For more information, visit PRIO.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trighauger. Music by Martin Minimal.